Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Okay, so I was I was waiting for you to talk, Madigan. I'm so I sorry. Tell. I was like <laughs> waiting for you to jump in, and we were just sitting here in silence for a few seconds. But I, I didn't know what to say. I was just going to let you do it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a graceful opening. I feel like this is two weeks of very solid introing on our part. Well, when we're not when we're not together and we can't do the spiel together, there isn't that natural like lead into conversation, or there's nothing that we can really go off of each other on. It's like we say that we're recording. We like tap the microphones and it's kind of like, and go. (laughs) And you're on. One, two, three, you're on. Well, we are in the second week of Pride. Is it the second? It is the second week. For a second, I thought it was the third. I'm like, no, we're in the second week. Anyway, we are on the second week of Pride. And we have really been working hard or trying to make sure that we incorporate a feminist fave in every month because Mm -hmm. we know that you all appreciate those episodes and so whenever we have a month like pride month or black history month uh we like to make sure that we get in one feminist fave that really highlights members of that community so yeah i mean we definitely talk about you know, people from all different types of communities all the time, through any time throughout the year. But it is nice to be able to focus on, uh, like, a very specific cause, have both of us talk about, you know, one sort of topic, two different people. I always find it very interesting how they tend to intersect, even it's if it's completely different times or things like that. It's always fascinating to me how alike we'll find some of these feminist favorites to be. Right. Well, I think that's kind of the nature of humanity. And it's interesting whenever we do this series, because you and I don't really communicate about I mean, we did this week a little bit, but usually we don't really communicate about who we're doing. And it's interesting to see us put two people up there and see that humanity is so alike very often and like experiences a lot of times will intersect even when we're not doing a themed episode like even if it's just kind of like random feminist faves a lot of times experiences will intersect despite the fact that there are a lot of differences as well so that's kind of interesting and Nice. Nice to see. It is nice to see. I'm, I, you know who I'm covering this week. I have I no idea who you're covering. I'm, I'm so excited and you're going first this week. So I why am. don't you get us started? I'm very excited about this. So I am going to be covering gay rights pioneer and activist Edith Windsor. Ooh. So Edith Schlein, who would go by Edie her whole life, which I think is the cutest name ever. I love I love an Edie. It always uh, reminds me of Edie from Desperate Housewives. Oh, I always think about Edie, Shed- Edie Sedgwick, 
who was the um, like factory girl. Yes. Like Andy Warhol's factory girl. I always think about her. I just think it's such a cute name. So Edie was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to a Russian Jewish immigrant family in 1929. And she mentioned later on in life that her family did experience a considerable amount of anti-Semitism. And though her family would eventually become financially stable and edge their way into the middle class, kind of like a modest, modest middle class. Right. Back um, when the middle class was a thing. Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) Uh, But they had suffered as a result of the Great Depression. So her father had lost both the candy and ice cream store that he owned as well as their home, which was above it in her early childhood. So it was kind of a rough start for her family. But she was super smart. She did super well in school. And she said that throughout her school days, she dated boys, but she always knew that she wanted to be with a woman and later recalled having crushes on girls at her school. I think that's got to be something that I mean, it is something that's so fascinating to me because now with social media, you know, we see examples of all different kinds of relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something so amazing for any child to just kind of innately have that understanding of themselves, even if they're like, well, I'm dating boys and, you know, things like that. But to have that self-awareness of their attraction and even being able to admit themselves to themselves that they would want to be with someone of the same gender, I could imagine that being a very, like, bizarre thing to run across your mind when you have no examples of that in exactly front of you, you know which so th- i think is such a it's so clearly indicates that this is not a choice that this is right. something that you're born with because if it's not something that you're seeing i feel like a lot of times the argument that a lot of right-wing conservative christian people say when they say like we don't want you shoving your homosexuality down our throats or we don't want it on TV or we don't want this because we don't want those examples for our kids because it'll turn our kids gay. And it's like, no, because it was happening before those examples really existed for people. So my feminist fave actually has a really great quote on that topic. Exactly. So I'm excited to get to it. (laughs) I'm ready. So in 1950, Edie kind of set out on her own for the first time to attend Temple University. And while she was in college, it was becoming more and more apparent to her that despite her feelings, she could not be open about her sexuality. Anti-gay laws were very much a thing at this Mm -hmm. time. And we've talked about it several times on this show, but you could lose your job. You could be thrown in jail if it was discovered that you were engaging in a same-sex relationship. And so women and men weren't even allowed to dance closely with those of the same sex in public places. It was very, very repressive. And so perhaps because of this, when her older brother's best friend Saul Windsor, who Edie had known all of her life and respected proposed marriage during their third year of college she accepted right and during their engagement Edie fell in love with a female classmate and called off the engagement but she wasn't ready to come out of the closet and live openly as a lesbian so she ended that relationship with the female classmate reconciled with Saul and the two were married after graduation so they ended their marriage Less than a year later, after she confided in him that she wanted to be with a woman, she was just like, listen, I thought I could stuff it down and make this work, but I just can't. I'm not living authentically as myself, you know? Good for her. And good for her that it was only a year, 
really. Yeah. I mean, I think for both parties involved, the sooner the better. But also, I think that that's a, a very lucky thing for her to have, again, had that self-awareness, to have that sort of education about herself, to realize that the position that she was in was not going to be a good one in the long term. Right. Yeah. So shortly after her divorce, she left Philadelphia for New York, and she was one smart cookie. In 1955, she began pursuing a master's degree in mathematics, which she obtained from New York University in 1957, and she joined IBM, where she worked for the next 16 years. During this time, she spent two semesters studying applied mathematics at Harvard University on an IBM fellowship. So very smart. You're I'm talking. Just, I'm jealous of people that know numbers. You know what Me I mean? Too. Like <laughs> Me too. But I mean, you're talking the 50s and IBM is like we are essentially we're going to send you on a fellowship to Harvard to like we we believe in you that much that we think that you're going to be such an asset to us in the future. Yeah. I mean, that is that is pretty wild to think about for the 1950s. Yeah, I mean, and she was basically a computer genius in the 1960s. She was known for her, quote, top-notch debugging skills and received the first IBM PC that was ever delivered to New York City. Oh, my God. Yeah, and would later be honored by the National Computing Conference in 1987 as a, quote, pioneer in operating systems. So she was very smart, very good at what she did. The smartest of cookies. Yes, indeed. In 1963, Edie was at a restaurant in Greenwich Village when she first met Thea Spire. That's where all the good gay stuff happens. Gotta go to Greenwich Village. (laughs) I know. And like Thea Spire, what a great name. I love the name Thea. We actually used to always rent a home from a woman named Thea in Sun Valley for like six years or so before my parents moved out there. And I always loved that name, Thea. It's so pretty. It is. Uh, And she was an Amsterdam-born psychologist. Mm. And at the time, both women were in relationships, but they stayed in contact and they ran into each other over the years. And in late spring of 1965, the two decided that they wanted to be together. And so they made it official. And they knew it was important for them to keep their relationship a secret. They, you know, had a conversation. They were like, listen... We're not revolutionaries. We're just two women who love each other. We just want to so, we want to live our lives together yes. under the radar. We're not here to make waves. We're just here to love each other. Absolutely. Right. So to keep the relationship from her coworkers, Edie invented a relationship with Thea's fictional brother whom she named Willie after her childhood teddy bear. Oh my god. <laughs> to explain cuz Thea would call the office, right? right. And, you know, asking for asking for her and so she was like that's just, you know, I'm dating her brother, so that's why she's calling me, you know. Oh. I highly recommend that people watch the 5-minute time video on YouTube about Edie's relationship with Thea. It's like time love stories or something yeah. like that. I I can I'll send you the video after this if you want to watch it cuz it's like Yeah, well, six we should minutes. put it we should put it in the show notes, too. Yeah. It's it's short, but it is so cute to hear her talking about Thea. In it, she says that Thea was always the real beauty of the relationship <laughs> and said that when she later asked Thea when she fell in love with her, she told her it was the second summer they were together when they rented a little vacation house together. And it was not long after that that the two were riding up to the Hamptons when Thea pulled over 
got down on one knee and began to ask Edie if she would marry her. But, but, but before Thea could even get the words out, Edie said yes. And she said that that upset Thea because she didn't actually get to finish proposing because she couldn't get the sentence out. I feel know? like I've heard stories like that before where it's like, no, I wanted to actually ask you. Yes. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, both women knew that the marriage could not be legal as same sex was not um, same sex marriage was not legal anywhere in the United States. Right. And Edie feared that having an engagement ring would expose her sexual orientation to her co-workers and the people around her. So when Thea proposed, she did so with a circular diamond brooch that Edie always wore. So she wore oh, a pin. Oh, I like yeah. that. Yeah. Six months after the engagement, the couple moved in together and they were both very successful in their respective jobs. And in 1968, they purchased a house in Long Island that they would vacation at every summer for the next 40 years. Beautiful. (laughs) Beautiful. Only the closest people to them knew about their relationship. And for those people, they often hosted dinner parties and they even had an annual Memorial Day weekend celebration um, for their anniversary. So for their friends who knew, they would host this big celebration for Memorial Day and celebrate their anniversary. I want to go to those (laughs) Memorial Day parties. Is it anything like Taylor Swift's Fourth of July parties she used to have? I don't know why that just came. It's like upper New York you know, beach parties, you know? You know, probably. It was probably in their Long Island beach house. That's where I would go. Host everybody in your Long Island beach house. Totally. <laughs> In 1969, Edie and Thea returned from a vacation in Italy to discover that the Stonewall riots had begun in their neighborhood the night before. And though they were hesitant to get involved, they were like, you know, once again, we're just ordinary women trying to lead ordinary lives. We don't really want to be heavily involved with this movement, but they knew that they had to do something. You know, they were two women living together, very much in love. And so they began participating in LGBT marches and events in the coming years and would lend their Cadillac convertible to LGBT rights organizations for parades. I love that. Always, you always have to have a convertible in a parade you with someone waving, to. you know? Yes, you have to. Necessary. So though Edie was highly respected at her job at IBM, she was denied when she attempted to name Thea as a beneficiary on her life insurance policy. And then she ended up leaving um, IBM shortly thereafter in 1975. And after she left, she became more involved with the LGBTQ organizations. Yeah. And she even, she, I mean, I'm sure that being part of IBM and being part of a very, like, traditional career path would make it really hard to have a very different personal life. I can understand where she would have to kind of remain in a certain mindset with having a job like that in her personal life even. Absolutely. And, you know, she'd been at this job for such a long time as well that these people knew her for such a long time. And I can imagine if you've almost been you could feel like I've been lying to these people about my personal life for so long how could I even come out to them if I wanted to you know and having like, to explain it and I mean especially yeah. at that time it'd be hard enough now but I mean at that time like with the questions or the stares or just I can understand that want to just live as quote-unquote normally as she could while she was in that job that makes a lot of sense to me and also there was probably an Maybe she thought, hey, I've been at this job for like 16 years. Totally. Y'all have to know. I mean, I'm not saying it, but like I would assume like they probably have some suspicion about my like my home situation or my relationship. And, 
you've been there, you're clearly valued. And then you ask them, hey, like, I'm not going to say it. You're not going to say it. But we both know this person is my partner. I'd like them to be the beneficiary on my policy. And then for that to get denied, yeah, it would probably feel pretty, like, shitty. It's pretty big, yeah. Yeah. But uh, after she left, I do think that she felt more free to start becoming active in more LGBT organizations. And she volunteered for the Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders and the East End Gay Organization and the LGBT Community Center. And in 1977, Thea was diagnosed with progressive multiple sclerosis, Mm. which caused gradual, ever-increasing paralysis in Thea that would eventually lead to her being in a wheelchair. MS really is just one of the ugliest diseases. It's just so sad. Yeah, it is. And this was a particularly devastating blow for the couple because they really bonded over in the beginning of their relationship and throughout. And she was, Edie would talk about how much they loved to dance together, you know. So for Thea to end up in a wheelchair, it was really devastating for them. Um, And 10 years after or into their engagement, Edie became Thea's full-time caregiver. So she used her early retirement to just care for Thea full-time. Yeah, and she didn't mind. In in of that time not. video, it's so sweet. In that time video, she says, quote, I think the truth is, if you really care about the quality of someone's life as much as you care about your own, you have it made. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, she's with the person that she loves. Oh, God. Yeah. On the very first day that domestic partnership between same-sex couples became available in New York City in 1993, Edie and Thea registered that the very first day they were in line and they were issued the 80th certificate that was issued in the whole city. Wow. In 2002, Thea suffered a heart attack and was diagnosed with aortic stenosis, which was a condition that worsened in 2007 when doctors gave her less than a year to live. Oh, my gosh. Thea told Edie that before she died, she wanted to get married. And because marriage was not yet legal in New York, the couple opted to get married in Toronto, Canada. So on May 22nd, 2007, surrounded by a handful of their closest friends, Edie and Thea were married by Canada's first openly gay judge, Justice Harvey Brownstone. (laughs) An announcement of their wedding was published in the New York Times, and Edie would go on to say, later that it was a New York Times piece that informed many of the people in her life, probably her co-workers and, and those people. Yeah, and her she, family. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that she was, you know, in this relationship. Right. And that she was a lesbian, you know. Edie said that the morning after they got married, they both felt different. That even though they had been together for over three decades, the relationship suddenly had a legitimacy that neither of them knew that they were lacking. You know, no, they were just yeah. like... And she said that she would later go on and it became kind of a thing for her to ask couples who were married, like, did you feel different after you got married? You oh, know? that's really sweet. Yeah. The couple was married for nearly two years before Thea passed away on February 5th, 2009 from complications related to her heart condition. Yeah. After her death, Edie was hospitalized with stress cardiomyopathy, which is described as a sudden temporary weakening of the muscular portion of the heart. It's also called broken heart syndrome. I Why did I know that was coming? As soon as yeah. you were mentioning what it was, I was like, she's going to say that she's 
got a broken heart. Oh God. Yeah, it's it's. I was reading about it on Wikipedia, and it's it is that essentially. I mean, it could also happen from a physical trauma, right? But, but it's more stress often than not, related. It's stress related, and oftentimes it's linked to emotional trauma, and so it is associated oftentimes with couples who suddenly lose their partner right. or something traumatic oh happens. So they gosh. call it broken heart syndrome. Yeah. <sighs> After Thea's death, Edie became the executor and sole beneficiary of Thea's estate, and she found that Thea had left her all of her properties as well as a trust. However, Edie was expected to pay $363,053 in federal estate taxes on her inheritance of her wife's estate. Had federal law recognized the validity of their marriage, Edie would not have had to pay for this. She would have qualified for an unlimited spousal deduction and paid no federal estate taxes. I see. So basically because the United States did not recognize their marriage, even though they'd been together for decades, didn't recognize their marriage as It would even be a common law marriage if it was a man and a woman at that point, you know? Right. So... Edie sought to claim the federal estate tax exemption for surviving spouses. Right. She's like, that's what I am. And she was barred from doing so by Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA, which provided that the term, quote, spouse only applied to marriages between a man and a woman. Mm. And the IRS found that the exemption did not apply to same-sex marriages and denied her claim, which is so... It's so diminishing to be told that. Imagine being with somebody for that many years and yeah. then be told that something called the Defense of Marriage Act. It, totally. Is, we have to defend the institution of marriage from people like you. And this is like 2009, 2010, because Thea passed away in 2009. You know, this is not long ago. This is It's crazy to think about. This isn't like we're talking about back in the, even in the 80s, you know, oh, she couldn't get. Right. You know, these exactly. rights and things. This is something that is so, so recent. recent. And when you do stop, like, I remember, like, you know, living in L.A. and when Minnesota passed their marriage act, finally. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that was in, like, 2012 or something like that. It's crazy it's how recent it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's easy to forget how yep. recent it is. Um, she would later tell NPR, quote, if Thea was Theo, I would not have had to pay that. It's Uh heartbreaking. It's just a terrible injustice. And I don't expect that from my country. I think it's a mistake that has to be corrected. Yeah. So she decided she was going to fight it. She was like, I'm not. This is some bullshit. It's not fair. And I'm not going to do it. So she she filed a lawsuit against the federal government seeking a refund because DOMA singled out legally married same-sex couples for differential treatment compared to other similarly situated couples without justification. Right. So after her case worked its way through the appeals courts, the Supreme Court decided in late 2012 to take it up. I mean, yeah, 2012, you and I were friends already. That's how recent. Yeah. Just want to point it out. I had lived in L.A. for two years already. Mm -hmm. I was like 20 years old. Yeah, this Mm -hmm. isn't. It's so weird. It's so sad and horrible to think about. But really, it's just such a recent memory. Yeah. So at the time, some even some gay rights activists worried that it was too soon to be taking this to the Supreme Court. They they were like, we're going to blow our chance. You know, they they didn't want to get too far ahead of public opinion. That's right. what they said. They were like, we might not be ready to to be there yet. You we know? might not have the support, which could make it all blow up in your face, and it might t- take even longer. Yeah, I, right. I understand the concern. 
I understand the concern, but I feel like... I don't agree with it. (laughs) And it's such a illustration of how I, I feel like this comes up it's kind of a common theme in a lot of the stories that we tell yeah is that there's always people who aren't ready uh-huh. and the only way to get over that th- you're never going to be you're never going to have the right time the no. right time doesn't exist you're never you going to have to do it you're never going to have the full support of your people you're never going to have the full support of your country it's never going to be the right time but I mean really there is such a a power move in that pushing the uncomfortable you know, and pushing it into the spotlight and making it less stigmatized. And that really is what she's doing by making it go when it goes all the way to Supreme to the Supreme Court. It's not something that can be ignored anymore. And people have to make a decision about it, which is why I think it's such a positive thing to push to make to get into right. that uncomfortable situation, you know. And she really humanized it for a lot of people. And we can argue whether or not like it needed to be like this or not. But I do think the fact that it was this little old lady who had been in a relationship for decades right. with this other. It was clearly like this. There is an image. Love story. Yeah. There's right? an image you know? to that that I think that a lot of people, even if they are homophobic, I think that it does set off a different image than if it were maybe a couple in their 20s trying to get married or something. It does play up that public image very well that she was an old lady. Yeah. I mean, and it's just. Whenever you encounter stories of like true love and like true devotion, those things strike a chord with the human mm-hmm. inside all of us. And I think that it's very hard. I think you have to have a really hardened heart to look at that and want anything but the best for someone like that. Like It's, it's humanizing. It's like, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and this is somebody who lost their partner of... Their whole life. Yeah, and know. anybody who's ever had that kind of love for another person, I think, can have that immediate recognition of that yeah. when she tells her story. Yeah, yeah. So on the day of the decision, uh, Edie and her friends and family gathered around a computer to read the headline that the high court had decided in a 5-4 decision to overturn DOMA in 2013. Woo-hoo! It was a landmark victory. Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote in the majority opinion, quote, DOMA instructs all federal officials and indeed all persons with whom same-sex couples interact, including their own children, that their marriage is less worthy than the marriage of others. No legitimate purpose overcomes the purpose and effect to disparage and to injure those whom the state sought to protect in personhood and in dignity. So it's just like, there's no reason to uphold this. We, the state has sought to protect it's citizens and like we need to do that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, definitely. basically. Edie was issued a tax refund, including interest. Good. Two years later, as a direct result of Edie's fight, the Supreme Court declared same sex marriage legal nationwide. And what year was it that it was legal na- nationwide? 2015. 2015. Wild. I and know. then the next year we'd have Trump. Oh God! Uh, it, it, <laughs> what is time? Time's oh, a flat circle. Oh God! What? How many lives have we lived, Keegan? I don't know. Many, many lives. Honestly, that feels like <laughs> so long ago, and it wasn't. It wasn't. And, okay. <sighs> well. Wow. Edie never stopped advocating for gay rights and the arts. She helped. You're gonna love this. She helped found. Old Queers Acting Up, an improv group utilizing skits, 
to address social issues, and she became... Isn't that amazing? Oh, my God. I just have a really big smile on my face. That's so cool. I love just, like, it's, like, old people doing improv. Anytime we have, like, any sort of person starting, like, a theater company, I think it automatically, like, endears us. You know what I mean? We're like, oh, yeah. We get you. We get you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, she was also an ardent supporter of New York City's largest LGBTQ plus band, the lesbian and gay Big Apple Corps, who performed a concert called The Roaring Music of Women, a tribute to the iconic Edie Windsor in her honor Aww. on Saturday, April 7th, 2018. Though Edie remarried in 2016, she never stopped wearing the brooch that Thea had given her whenever she attended a Pride event or made a public appearance. Yeah. She went on to receive countless awards for her advocacy and activism. And in the days before her death, she met with then President Barack Obama in the White House. Edie passed away on September 12th, 2017 at the age of 88. Hillary Clinton gave the address at her funeral. Wow. In a statement released following her death, Obama said this about the historic 2015 decision to legalize same-sex marriage nationwide. He said, I thought about Edie that day. I thought about all the millions of quiet heroes across the decades whose countless small acts of courage slowly made an entire country realize that love is love and who, in the process, made us all more free. They deserve our gratitude and so does Edie. <laughs> I, was I like, love that. <laughs> well, there's something, you know, you... you he said that she was a quiet hero. And I think that really encapsulates her life so well because it, it, she didn't live this like radical activist life her whole life. It was more so she just wanted to be herself. She wanted the things in life that we all want out of life. We want to find love. We want a family, a job, a career, and to feel secure in ourselves. And she really wasn't trying to make waves, but it was one of those things where it was like once she was able to see how she could no longer stay silent. She completely, like, that whole activist heart in her came out, even if it was, you know, later in life and quieter than some. She, to me, seems like one of the more unassuming people to have completely overturned such a huge, huge part of our country. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, it, totally. she wasn't, like, from day one, that ardent, radical activist, yet she was able to make this undeniable unbelievable change in our country just based out of love. I think it really speaks to how when you are willing to and brave enough to live your truth, that is a radical act within itself. I mean, the fact that those two women risked imprisonment, like they risked so many things, isolation, ostracism. Wow. I hate that word too. But (laughs) They risked all these things in order to be together Mm -hmm. and to live the life that they wanted to live on their terms. And that does make you a hero. That is a radical act. A lot of people cannot do that, you know, or, or choose not to do it because in so many ways it's easier not to. But look how many lives she affected by just saying, I'm going to live as my authentic self and I'm going to stand up for things that I think are unfair, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Uh, 
and it's a really, really beautiful thing. I'm going to send you that video because I cried when I watched it. And I just think that she's a really adorable, special person. There are so many like pictures and videos of her at Pride, you know, marches later on in her life when she's like in her 80s. I love it. And she's still dancing. She's still wearing her pin. And it's just precious. I love it. I love it so much. Thank you so much for telling us about Edie. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm I'm doing a heavy hitter. Uh, I... I went from having like over 20 pages of notes and having to condense it down. I got down to 15, but I am talking about the absolutely iconic and historic Harvey Milk. So mm-hmm. wish me luck. How am I, I going to get this into like a half an hour? I don't know. Um, I want to mention I did watch the movie Milk. I had never seen it. I've always really, really wanted to see it. Um, I've not seen it either. It's really great. Um, I had to kind of look up because I remembered there being problematic stuff about Sean Penn, and we don't have time, obviously, to get into all of that kind of stuff, but I was satisfied with, like, there was a big, um, the biggest accusation was him abusing Madonna. Yes. And Madonna has come out and said that it did not happen. So I needed to, like, know that before I could watch the movie. And then James Franco was in it. He's a piece of shit. He's a great actor. I wish he wasn't such a piece of shit, but he is. But the movie itself, I am so glad that I watched because this man did so much in his life that just doing notes was impossible to keep the story straight and know where I was and who he was with and all this kind of stuff. So I thoroughly enjoyed the movie. If you don't know the story of Harvey Milk and you want to know more after hearing me tell you as much as I can, I highly suggest seeing the movie. It was fantastic. I believe there is also, and I haven't seen it, but I believe there is also a like critically acclaimed documentary. There was like an Academy Award winning documentary that came out Mm -hmm. in like the 90s or 80s that I think it's, I can't remember what it's called. It was on... it was on Hulu for a while. I don't know if it's still on there. But I'll check it might out. Check and see. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of the movie was based off of that documentary as well. So at the end of the movie, it kind of said that. Anywho, I'm going to talk to you about Harvey Milk. So Harvey Milk was born in Woodmere, New York, to his Lithuanian-born parents, William and Minerva, on May 22nd, 1930. Both of his parents were in the Navy during World War One. Harvey also had an older brother named Robert. His family was small and middle class, but they were a big part of their community, mostly because Harvey's grandfather uh, traveled from Lithuania to the U.S. for his new life in 1897. And there, when he got to the U.S., he opened Milk's Dry Goods and eventually expanded to Milk's Department Store, which became the largest department store in Long Island. So the family has like a big history in New York. They had a big community, things like that. And really kind of like built themselves up from yeah, not a pick, lot. Pick like, them up by their the- bootstraps. Yeah, you know, why can't you guys do that? But, <laughs> right? But no, but I mean, like, they did, that's kind of like the traditional American dream, yeah, right? Like, totally. Start your own business. You know, they became super popular. It sounds like everybody in his family was pretty, like, friendly and charismatic. I don't know a lot about his childhood. Um, I think that this episode would be even longer if I did. So maybe that's a good thing. Um, but they, he does come from a Jewish family. And Harvey struggled a bit with his Judaism growing up because he thought that religion in general was filled with falsehood and hypocrisy, but he still kept his Jewish heritage as a very important part of his identity. And in fact, in a time when Jewish people were being openly 
openly derided by society, he would kind of flaunt that side of himself. He would kind of make it more known that he was Jewish when it was unpopular to be that way, you know? Harvey had stated that he knew that he was gay by the time he went into high school and reportedly began having some meetups with other boys in his early teens. As a teenager, he would cruise Central Park. It's kind of a word from what I've learned for like how different gay people would pick up other gay people. You go cruising, you know. So he would cruise through Central Park and was once taken to a police station with a group of other men suspected of cruising. He was later released after telling the officers he was only there to get a suntan. It's <laughs> like, listen, listen, I just wanted to lay out with my little reflector yeah. and get a nice suntan. I'm not here to meet boys, what? <laughs> and what what year is this? Like, what year was he born? He was sorry. born in 1930. So this okay. would be... So a year after Eve. Yeah, so this would be like the 50s around then. Okay, so yeah, same time period. Yep, and he was in New York. Well, Edie wasn't from New York, but she came to New York. So Harvey spent most uh, spent all of his life pretty much until he moved to San Francisco in New York. Um so although, you know, obviously he was very self-aware, he knew that he was gay, but he also knew that it was important to hide that part of himself when he was younger. For example, he was like obsessed with opera like opera was his number one love in life but to make up for his love of opera he would play football and basketball for the high school teams and he was also a class clown which made him really popular and well liked and he was able to kind of uh, disguise his sexuality with all these other parts of his life. After high school, he went to the New York State College for Teachers in Albany where he joined a Jewish fraternity Kappa Beta There, he also became the sports editor of the school paper. He graduated with a degree in mathematics in 1951 and worked as a teacher at George W. Hewlett High School in Long Island for a bit. But then, Harvey decided to follow in his parents' footsteps, and he joined the Navy. He attended officer candidate school in Newport, Rhode Island, and served as a diving instructor and chief petty officer aboard the USS... Kitty Wake during the Korean War. Okay, Kitty, Kitty Wake. Wake. So there's been a few, there are different accounts of how he was discharged from the military. Wikipedia says that he wasn't dishonorably discharged, but a lot of other places that I've read have said that he was dishonorably discharged. And though he was not very open about his sexuality during this time, it seemed like he was pretty good at concealing it. It does. It does appear to be that the Navy dishonorably discharged him for his sexuality, just based on kind of the the things that I've seen and kind of the way that I think a lot of people understand that story to be. So he left the Navy. One day after returning to New York, he was cruising in the park when he met Craig Rodwell, described as a militant gay activist who would go on to claim the term gay power and open the Oscar Wilde bookshop, the first gay and lesbian bookstore in the United States. And Rodwell really believed in the power of coming out. The more people that were out, the more they could organize and gather to make gay rights and the movement stronger. And at the time, like I've said, Harvey really didn't prescribe to this kind of thinking. He really wanted to kind of blend in more and, you know, make make his way in life, but also still be able to be with the person that he was with. But he really wasn't looking to take an activist stance because of who he loved. Uh, He began working in insurance at a Wall Street firm. And while his heart wasn't in the job, he was very popular at work and he often got promotions. 
what's funny is he was actually kind of considered a Republican, and he worked on Barry Goldwater's campaign. Oof. Isn't that weird? That is it's weird. It's super bizarre. So he was this, like, straight-laced, Wall Street, Republican gay guy. You know what I mean? He just had all these many facets to him. Did the people at his job know about his sexuality or was that something he kind of kept under wraps? From what I understand, it was a lot like Edie where he just, you know, when he was off work, he was living his life however he wanted. But it seems to me from, you know, the movie and from the things that I've read, it seems like he was kind of, he had this very like straight presenting persona and was super outgoing and likable as a way to kind of disguise the fact that there was another side of him that wouldn't make people ask questions, you know? Yeah, it's kind of a don't ask, don't tell situation at work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In 1969, Harvey met Joseph Scott Smith, who was just called Scott Smith, who had just moved to New York City. Scott was born in Florida, and he was also the son of a Navy couple, so they had a lot in common. Together, they worked in the theater scene in New York, and Scott was working as a stage manager while Harvey was working as an associate producer. And so, for those of you who don't know, one of my favorite musicals of all time is Hair. And they would hang out. I took this part out of my notes, so I don't have the name written down, but they hung out with the director of Hair and would, like, travel with him. He also did Jesus Christ Superstar. So they were, like, working with this guy who would go on to do, like, really big things in Broadway. It was this director guy that initially brought them, brought both Scott and Harvey to San Francisco. And both Scott and Harvey loved it so much that they ended up moving there permanently in 1972. So for a bit of history, since the end of World War II, the major port city of San Francisco had become home to a sizable number of gay men who had been expelled from the military, much like Harvey. Many of these men decided it better to stay in San Francisco than go home to their families and face possible ostracism. There's that word. I know, right? I said, no, ostracization (laughs) is what I can't. That's what you were trying to say. Ostracization. In San Francisco, Harvey became more embedded in the artistic world and the hippie culture of the time. It seems like Scott, his boyfriend, was also like much more hippie-like than Harvey was. So I think that really brought out another side of him. And he really, really loved where he lived in the Castro district. So together, the couple opened Castro Camera in 1972 at 575 Castro Street. The pair bought the location using their last $1,000 in their savings. Oh, wow. I know, right? Soon, Castro Camera became the place for misfits to meet, especially young gay people who had come to Castro from all across the United States looking for a place to call home. And beyond selling cameras and rolls of film, Castro Camera became a headquarters for voter registration and polling stations for San Francisco elections, and Harvey began seeing the importance of local politics particularly because he was really unhappy with the way that small business owners were being treated and him being a small business owner was starting to kind of be like, well, if I don't like it, I'm going to do something about this. And the other big issue was that, you know, this being a very kind of up and coming gay district, there were also a lot of um, Catholic people still in the area and the archdiocese still held a very strong tie to that part of the city. So there were a lot of Catholic business owners that were very against, you know, gay businesses starting and things like that. So kind of an an opening for politics. How do I want to say this? Harvey saw an opening for the gay community to make their mark by opening businesses, by making the Castro district um, filled with different gay 
businesses and workers in order right, for them to make in numbers, right? You're going to take over that section. Right, totally. From early on in his political career, Harvey showed how it pays to have friends in high places. Doesn't it always? It really does. So Teamsters wanted to strike against beer distributors, Coors Beer in particular, who refused to sign their union contract. So the Teamster organizers contacted Harvey and they were like, hey, can you get all the Coors Beer out of all the gay bars in San Francisco? And Harvey was like, fuck yes, I can. I'm on it. (laughs) They, all of his friends, everybody, you know, that hangs out at Castro Camera, like canvassed all the gay bars down Castro Street and urged them to refuse to sell Coors beer, and they were successful. Harvey and his friends were now on good terms with the Teamsters, which made them people that you wouldn't want to mess with. And, oh, I forgot to say this earlier. So in return for helping the Teamsters, Harvey said that they had to hire more gay drivers, and that's what they did. So now they the Teamsters had these gay drivers which gave them this kind of like tougher persona as well like we've got the teamsters behind us don't mess with us kind of thing and also i'm sure gave people who were maybe struggling like an employment yeah 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 it was definitely good all around and definitely good for the status and the protection in the city So more and more gay businesses began to pop up on Castro and more and more politically motivated kids started joining together at Castro Camera. And in that time, Harvey became known as the mayor of Castro Street. (laughs) So getting into San Francisco politics wouldn't be easy for Harvey. He had only been living there for a little over a year, and that seemed to matter more than all the good that he had done for the district within that time. Also, the gay community had already kind of gathered around their candidates of choice, and Harvey Milk was not among them. Both the straight and the gay community of San Francisco kind of believed that Harvey had to wait his turn. Right. You you pay your dues. That's I feel like a lot of people have that mentality about politics. It's like, yeah. who do you think you are? You know, just come in here. You've only lived here for X amount of time. And all of these people, you got to wait in line. You got to yeah. wait behind these other people. But it's pretty crazy because he hadn't lived there even like a full year And he'd already, like, made such an impact on this district that really he had, you know, enough wherewithal to be like, no, I'm going to do this anyways. So he ran for the Board of Supervisors for the first time in 1973. And his boyfriend, Scott, acted as his campaign manager. And then he also had his buddies, Cleve Jones and Frank Robinson, helping him out on the campaign. But unfortunately, he lost. But this wasn't a negative thing to him. Harvey had placed 10th out of 32 candidates in the election and won nearly 17,000 votes. And to Harvey, this meant he had a chance in the next election. So he was like, yeah. I was only 10th. Like, wh- if I try next year, I'll probably get even more. And your influence is only going to grow. And yeah, I would see that as a win as well, because there have to be people who didn't know who you were before who know who you are now. And you're yep. only going to get, you know, bigger that way. Exactly. And he kind of continued this driving force of having more and more gay businesses open up in the area. And It was working. He and other queer merchants developed the Castro Village Association, which is the first time in the United States that the LGBTQ plus businesses had officially united together. He founded the Castro Street Fair in 1974 to bring more attention and business to the neighborhood, and that event is still held annually to this day. It didn't say online 
But I want to say he also ran in 1974. But the next time that I have written is 1975. He decided to run again for supervisor. And this time he decided to make himself more of a serious candidate. So I hadn't mentioned this much before, except for the fact that he had kind of gotten more into the hippie culture. He grew his hair super long. He had a long beard. You know, he dressed and looked like a smelly old hippie. He didn't have that look of like a political candidate. So he cut his long hair, he swore off weed, and he vowed to never visit a gay bathhouse ever again. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> oh, but his bid for supervisor was finally successful after three years. In 1977, he was finally able to represent his beloved Castro district. And this made Harvey one of the first openly gay elected officials in United States history. Along with Harvey, former San Francisco police officer slash firefighter Dan White was also elected to the Board of Supervisors. I'm going to mention him more later. Put a pin in that. Okay, bookmark that for now. Harvey's first act was to introduce a civil rights bill outlawing discrimination based on sexual orientation. And he had a wonderful man in his corner that was supporting this bill to be passed, and that was Mayor George Moscone. And when Moscone signed the bill into law, he signed the papers with a special light blue pen that Harvey had given him specially for the occasion. Oh, that's amazing, actually, because I mean, I know that San Francisco is a pretty liberal city, has been. And but this was kind of the beginning of right exactly. of more liberal politics being involved in San Francisco. Right. So it's kind of incredible that at this time, this guy is like, yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. Yeah. Mayor Moscone from, you know, the side googling that I did really was about um, making San Francisco a more diverse place politically because when Harvey was elected, there were also um, a lot of other minority groups that were elected within that time as well. So Moscone really had this like importance on diversifying City Hall and that's kind of what he was really known for. He was also instrumental in repealing the sodomy law in California state legislature in 1975. So he really was... Uh, someone that the gay community of San Francisco felt that they had an ally in. And Harvey and George Moscone seemed to really have a, a really good relationship and definitely had a lot of respect for one another. One thing I wanted to say about this bill was that it passed by every single person on the board, except for it had one dissenting vote. And that was from... Dan White, who I mentioned mm. earlier. So let's talk a little bit about Dan and Harvey and their relationship. So like I said, they were both elected at the same time to the Board of Supervisors. They were both working under George Moscone. But Dan White uh, was completely opposite than Harvey. He was not warm and fuzzy. He was much more severe. He was a policeman, firefighter, um, kind of gave off that energy, I guess, whatever. It's got you would, real toxic masculinity vibes. Yeah, that machismo, you know. And Dan White had beef with Harvey, I guess, on the surface because Dan had, he had made a campaign promise that he would get rid of a mental institution in his district and he wasn't getting <laughs> the votes. Did. Right, exactly. He didn't like how it made his district look, so that was like his big like campaign promise. But people weren't going for it like he wanted them to once he had actually gotten the job. So he was trying to convince Harvey to support him in this. And then he would support Harvey on whatever he wanted passed in the future. What kind of monster is trying to get a mental institution? Like, you're like, we have to shut it down. Exactly. And so when Harvey looked at it, he was like, I don't agree with this. So I'm going to 
I'm going to dissent. I'm not going to agree to do this. And then ever since then, Dan White would purposefully vote the opposite of whatever Harvey voted. Oh, petty as fuck, and it gets even worse. So by the time Harvey won supervisor, his seven-year relationship with Scott had ended, and he had began a relationship with Jack Lira. Jack had a very serious drinking problem, and it also appears to me that he's, he struggled a lot with depression, but that also could have been because of his... Um, substance abuse he would be very difficult to handle he was usually drunk and whenever he would be at any sort of political events harvey's aides would kind of have to remove jack and be the ones to take care of it but i think you know jack was much younger and harvey i think had this kind of almost parental protection over Jack from what I've read about them. Like, loved him deeply, but it was also just, it was a really, really toxic relationship. It's a fixing situation. We've all done that. We've yeah. all been in relationships with people who were like, you have so much incredible potential, I can fix you. You know, right. I think that's very common dynamic in relationships. Yeah, and Jack relied on Harvey a lot. And, you know, even in little times that he had seen that Harvey let him down, you know, he would, you know, threaten suicide and make very big scenes. And it it was just a very tumultuous relationship. And eventually Jack did die of suicide, which deeply affected Harvey. And on the ninth anniversary of the Stonewall riots, Harvey addressed the gay pride parade beginning with his catchphrase, my name is Harvey Milk and I'm here to recruit you. (laughs) And ending the message with hope for a better world. Hope for a better tomorrow. Hope for a better place to come to if the pressures at home are too great. In 1976, so now we're kind of going back about a year, but this is important. Anita Bryant, that bitch, I'm sorry, Uh (laughs) was all over everyone's television spouting hate and homophobia. So she was kind of like... She was like a Christian gospel singer, and then she was also the face of some product. So she was like known on TV and in like the evangelical Christian circles and things like that. So she had a bit of celebrity to her. So she would get on TV and talk about the dangers of homosexuality and this fear mongering that a lot of Americans really attach themselves to. So Harvey and his friends really made it their mission to expose Anita for who she really was and to fight against a lot of the different bills that she was helping to try to get passed. Anita was pushing for a referendum that would have allowed schools to fire teachers based on their sexual orientation and they could also fire allies. So if you were someone who supported the LGBTQ plus community, you could also be fired from your job. During that time, there were a lot of different debates that Harvey would have with Anita Bryant and others about this issue. And kind of exactly what you said in the story of Edie, where it was like, clearly this isn't like homosexuality is not learned. Like this is something who people are. And so Harvey said in one of these debates, if it were true that children mimicked their teachers, you'd sure have a hell of a lot more nuns running around. That's true. I mean, it's true. I mean, it's such a weird it's such a weird logic it's such a weird mental leap to make now we say that representation matters and that if you see it you can be it and that part is true however when it comes to something like sexuality it doesn't really make sense to say that like people are only what they see right because yeah. then there wouldn't be 
there wouldn't be gay people, period. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because totally. it's not like there was a lot of representation or any representation for that. I feel like representation is more about feeling valid in yourself. Luckily, this was unsuccessful in California. So once Harvey had been a supervisor for a while, he decided that he wanted to join the California State Assembly. The race was close, but Harvey lost by less than 4,000 votes. But after his loss, realizing the existing political powers weren't on his side, he co-founded the San Francisco Gay Democratic Club. So it looks like I might have missed a place in my notes, but I did just mention that he wanted to join the Board of Assembly because now all of a sudden I'm at Harvey Milk made national headlines when he was sworn into the California Assembly. <laughs> he got there. I don't know how he got there in my notes, but he got there. Um, but he became the first non-incumbent openly gay man in the U.S. to win an election for public office, which is super cool. Huge. And along with Harvey, single mother Carol Ruth Silvers was elected, Chinese-American Gordon Lau, black woman Ella Hill Hutch. Uh, they were all first for San Francisco in public office. So this is a office. big deal in yeah. one, one election. Yeah, it was huge. Well, like I said, George Moscone really had this vision of diversifying San Francisco and made it. You know, I think that that opened the door to having all different kinds of people run for office. And this was the perfect time for change in San Francisco, too, because people were wanting more liberal politics in the city and things like that. At this time, the Board of Supervisors president was Ms. Diane Feinstein. We're oh. going to hear more about her later. You know, I didn't mention her in my story, but she worked with Edie to help pass laws in California as well. I bet Harvey had a lot to do with that. Yeah. Uh, she was not the biggest fan of him at first. Uh, she found him to be, like, just on a personal level, he was kind of a prankster. He did a lot of hijinks. Like, on his birthday, they would always smash a pie in his face or a cake in his face. And, you know, he was just super out there, you know? Yeah. Sometimes big personalities. It's always, like, hit or miss with people, yeah. you know? Yeah, and also Harvey was willing to vote against her on things and disagree with her, which I don't think she was so fond of. But I guess like professionally and even pro like she liked him. But just in what I read, it was like he was difficult to work with. <laughs> sure. <laughs> which it sounds like he might have been like he was kind of a big kid. He wasn't very organized. He was kind of all over the place. He had big ideas, big personalities. So I can see where he wouldn't be everybody's cup of tea. He'd you know? be one of those people who you're like, gosh, I really like Harvey, but like also, you know, like, I need I need a cocktail after we have a conversation. He's like I need to wind to down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Harvey was really trying to make his mark in San Francisco politics in some way. And there was one problem that nobody wanted to touch and it would kind of skyrocket him into stardom. And that is the dog poop problem. Apparently, San Francisco had an issue with dog poop all over the city that owners were not picking up. So Harvey began to work on an ordinance that would require dog owners to do their damn jobs. This pooper scooper ordinance was a hit with the media and... You would see Harvey all over the TV and newspapers, and he invited press one day to Dubco Park, a place where apparently there was a surplus of dog poop always left around, and they he set up this, like, press event. So he was going to say a few things in front of the camera and, like, being shown, like, picking up dog poop and things like that. And apparently Harvey had gotten there, like, an hour before the press got there to kind of figure out exactly where he wanted the camera to be and everything. So as they roll, Harvey's walking toward the camera and lo and behold, 
steps in a pile of dog poop. There is an infamous photo of him like smiling, pointing at his shoe that was like all over the newspapers. He became a hit because nobody wanted to fix this problem, but everyone was so frustrated by it. And Harvey Milk was the person to kind of jump in and take care of the poop problem. I will say the poop problem in California, I mean, in LA, like dog owners to this day don't pick up poop. Like I can't go outside without seeing dog poop. It, Always. Always. Always all over the place. So 10 months after Dan White and Harvey Milk were sworn in as supervisors, Dan White decided that he wanted to resign from his position, saying that his salary was not enough to support his family. He was this paid. This guy sounds like such a dick. Oh, well, he sounds a, like such a douche. He's a major douche. He was He was like, oh, I made more as a firefighter, so I don't really okay, want this job bye, anymore. You don't need to be a public servant. Like, the whole point of having this job is to serve the public. Exactly. Right? And as much as it sucks that people who genuinely want to do good and serve the public don't make enough, you yeah. know, I understand that. However, like, you should be going into that job because you have a passion for public service. Definitely. Like, definitely, yeah. Um, but within days... He was asking to take back his resignation. He went to Mayor Moscone and was like, hey, just kidding. I really want to come back. And initially, Moscone was kind of like, eh, I guess, like, why not? And we'll just bring him back. But all of, you know, Dan White's co-workers and the other supervisors were like, this is not a good idea. Like, embarrassing. Yeah, like, he was, like, the one person that just went against what everybody else wanted. He was the one who made the decision to leave. He can't just take it back, you know, so Mayor Moscone decided that he would stand firm and tell Dan White that he wasn't able to come back to his job. And he had planned to make that announcement for White's replacement on November 27th, 1978. About a half an hour before the press conference, Dan White avoided the metal detectors at City Hall by entering through a basement window. White went to Moscone's office and requested a meeting. Upon entering his office, Dan White shot Mayor Moscone once in the shoulder, once in the chest, and twice in the head, killing him. Diane Feinstein says to have seen White exit the mayor's office from a side door and called after him. White allegedly responded sharply, I have something to do first. White intercepted Harvey on the way to his former office and invited Harvey inside. Harvey agreed to join him. Once inside, Dan White shot Harvey Milk. Harvey was shot five times, including two shots in the head. It was Feinstein who later addressed the press, saying, Today, San Francisco has experienced a double tragedy of immense proportions. As president of the Board of Supervisors, it is my duty to inform you that both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed, and the suspect is Supervisor Dan White. Moscone was 49 years old and Harvey was 48. Within an hour of the killings, White called his wife from a nearby diner. They met at a nearby church, and she urged him to turn himself in. Nightmare for that wife as well. Like, what a nightmare. An absolute nightmare. nightmare. And she does become an ex-wife. So it looks like, luckily, she leaves him after this. But she was there to push him to make the right decision and turn himself in, which is good. But there is more. So after the assassinations, City Hall became a memorial. 25,000 to 40,000 people formed a spontaneous candlelit march from Castro Street to City Hall. And if you look at photos of it, it's beautiful. It's so many people. The next day, the bodies of Moscone and Harvey were brought to the City Hall Rotunda where mourners paid their respects. 
Two memorials were held for Harvey, one small one at a temple and a more boisterous one at an opera house in San Francisco, which is where I think Harvey would have really loved to have had his end-of-life celebration. (laughs) His remains were cremated and his ashes were split. His friends scattered most of them in the San Francisco Bay, and others were encapsulated and buried beneath the sidewalk in front of his old camera shop at 575 Castro Street. Harvey had this idea in his head that he would probably be assassinated as his popularity grew and grew. He did receive a lot of very violent and increasingly violent death threats throughout his time in politics. So he started recording himself and kind of telling his story on these tapes. And in the tapes, he discussed, you know, what he wanted to see San Francisco become, particularly his district. And so he gave a list of names of people who he thought would appropriately fill his position when he died. Like he really had this idea in his head that he would someday pass away and one of the names of the replacements was harry Britt, who was chosen to fill harvey's position by the city's now acting mayor diane feinstein so that's how she became mayor was because moscone passed away gosh she's been doing this for so long how old is diane feinstein i know on those tape recordings at some point harvey is quoted as saying if a bullet should enter my brain let that bullet destroy every closet door So I know. So if you remember me talking about um, the guy that he met way back in New York when he was still kind of in the closet, Craig Rodwell, he was the gay power guy. He was the one that really encouraged everybody to come out. And that kind of became Harvey's big thing throughout his career is that there's strength in numbers. He really encouraged everybody he knew to come out and to come out to their families and their friends and to be open about it because he had this idea that if you could humanize that experience, just like we were talking about with Edie, people would be more understanding of them once they realize that they know someone like them and so on and so forth. I feel like it's... We talk about this all the time, and I don't like it that people lack empathy to such a degree that they need to have a personal experience with somebody in order to be able to have empathy for someone else's life or Uh experience. However, unfortunately, that kind of is the case. It's You are more likely to have empathy if you can relate on a personal level. And I do think that there is power in numbers. I think that everybody needs to take their own time and not everybody is going to be ready to come out. He was pretty pushy. He was very, like, he would, there's even some stories about him, like, kind of outing some people that he didn't really, like, mean to do it, but it happened, you know? Like, he really was a proponent of, like you need to do this. Like, it is your responsibility to come out, which I don't necessarily, like, prescribe to, but it really was something for him that I think that he saw how much his own life changed once he came out and how much happier he was and how, you know, in the movie he talks about how he didn't really feel like he'd done anything in his life that he was proud of before that point. And I can see that, you know, getting into politics like he did and making that change, I'm sure that a lot of that he attests to the fact that he finally came out and it was finally himself. So I can understand that thought process of wanting to 
push people out of their comfort zone and push them out of the closet to be like, look, we can we can be ourselves and we don't have to be scared. I do totally understand that. I disagree with that methodology because I do think that people need to be mentally prepared and ready because it is sometimes, you know, we've done several coming out episodes. We're going to be doing another one. It can be very, very scary and traumatic for people. And sometimes you're not ready to have that kind of, you're not mentally or emotionally prepared for that. And I think that while, of course, you want people to be living their most authentic lives, you want to make sure they get there safely. Safely. Well, and that's the thing, you know, is that Castro was all the misfits and a lot of them were, you know, gay youth that were kicked out of their homes and things like that. And there, there was, there still is that fear of coming out to your families and being disowned because you love them. You're afraid of course that you would lose your support system of your family, you know, not just your friends and the new family that you've made, but also just the, the damage that could happen. And that is a really valid fear regardless of what your relationship is is like with your family members or with your parents. Like it's, you can rationally know that like, that's really shitty of my parents. Like you can say all day long, well, fuck them if they don't accept me for who I am. But it's more complicated than that a lot of times. And like you, a lot of the time, I think people do want love and acceptance from their parents. Yeah. And, or from their family members. And it, it's not as simple as just saying, like, just do it and fuck them, you know? Totally. It's not. Yeah, it's really not. But at the same time, I think that there was a lot of people out there that needed that push. And hearing Harvey encouraging people to come out of the closet, I think, for probably half was some the push that they needed. You know what I I'm, mean? This encouragement. I'm all for the encouragement. Yes. Definitely. I'm all for that. <laughs> So I have a little bit of an epilogue here, and I thoroughly encourage all of you to go just read the Wikipedia page all about the Moscone Harvey Milk assassination and read about the trial because it is fascinating. Um, I would need a whole 30 minutes, maybe a whole hour to get into all of it. But there are some important things that I want to point out. Um, Dan White's defense strategy became nicknamed something called the Twinkie defense, which became infamous. So his lawyer was suggesting that between the time that Dan White left his job, he had become so depressed that he had begun eating copious amounts of sugar, Twinkies in particular, which had changed his judgment or clouded his judgment in such a way that made him behave differently than he normally would how much did he pay this lawyer right that's a hell of a defense it's complete bullshit and anybody who knew dan white knew that he was homophobic knew he had problems with the way mayor Moscone was wanting to run the city that he had serious problems with who harvey was as a person and the changes that harvey was making to san francisco as well so really everybody who knew him knew that this was bullshit but they still they threw this ludicrous defense out there and it kind of worked because he was acquitted of first degree murder he was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter of both milk and Moscone. he was yeah i don't i don't think that was the defense that worked i think that that was homophobia and other factors that worked to, because well i think that but i think that also it's like you know whoever that jury was if that was enough reasonable doubt in their minds 
that was a reason but for them to lean into their homophobia. For some people, there doesn't have to be reasonable uh, doubt. Like yeah. you look at you look at the jury, um, you know, of the men who murdered Emmett Till. It's like there wasn't reasonable doubt there. Everybody knew that they did yeah. it, and it didn't matter what what defense was presented, they were going to be acquitted no matter what right. was presented. It didn't have to be reasonable, you know. So I don't know. To me, that just feels like they were just like, you literally left. You told somebody, hey, I, I got more stuff I got to do. Yeah. So it was very clearly premeditated. Yes. Like there's just, I'm sorry, sugar fucked up your brain chemistry? Yeah, you dodged the metal detectors at City Hall. You snuck in through a window. That's a lot of premeditation right there. You brought a gun. It reminds me It reminds me of that newscaster who was, or not even a newscaster, that game announcer who at a high school game called, he said the N-word when he didn't know his mic was still oh. on at, the, at a high school, and he said it was because he was in diabetic shock. He was like, I'm diabetic oh and my, my blood God. sugar was low. Yeah. And it was just like, that doesn't make you say the N-word about a bunch of high schoolers. Oh, like, it's- Yeah, exactly. But Dan White was sentenced to seven and two-thirds years, and the sentence was reduced for time served and good behavior. So he got out in five years. You murdered the mayor. But... Like, you got out... You murdered the mayor. Yeah. You murdered the fucking mayor. You murdered the mayor. So he got out of prison January 7th, 1984. On October 21st, 1985, he was found dead in a running car in his ex-wife's garage, having completed suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning at 39 years old. Dude, also, you can't convince me that this is not, that this man wasn't abusive to his wife because I'm like that's some abusive bullshit right there that's manipulative as fuck (laughs) it's psychological warfare yeah to to go to your ex-wife's house and do it there like it's to me it's it's a final fuck you was trash all the way around in every way like the wow the best thing I mean obviously the legacy of Harvey Milk I could go on and on and on about the amazing ways that he's inspired politics and people in this country and all over the world but something that I found really important was that he did change the California legal system with his death Uh, the Twinkie defense was under the diminished capacity defense and that was abolished as a defense strategy to charge after that whole incident California abolished it so you can no longer use diminished capacity as a defense to this day in California thanks to that trial wow I know crazy right I there's I know I did not do this man justice like please go and watch the movie watch the documentary do your own research he is the most like magnetic energetic cool person like he would have been friends with like Bernie Sanders he was all about legalizing marijuana and like civil rights and he was so opening open and welcoming to everybody it it would have been amazing to see what he could have done with the time if he had had more time but what he did in the time that he had has really like it's amazing how many years has gone by and he is still inspiring activists to this day with the way that he went about things Yeah, I mean, I think with both of these people, the takeaway is to really try and embrace who you are and try and do the most with that. Because with Edie, you're right. It's like she wasn't this person who, in small ways throughout her life, she did dedicate herself to activism. She was always in activist causes, but she didn't dedicate her life in the same way that Harvey Milk dedicated her life. But 
she let her convictions guide her throughout her life. Yeah. And I think Harvey Milk did the same thing. And, and they're I think authenticity. If you do that, right. If you live within your purpose, I think that that's what it is. Yeah. It's like living within your purpose. And if you do that, you have the potential to make a massive impact. And if you don't make what you would consider to be a massive impact, right, you definitely made an impact within the lives of those around you. Yeah. If you're living within your purpose, regardless, I, you know, so do that. Yeah. I always encourage friends of mine, you know, when they're dating or meeting new people, it's like you need to open up to other people for other people to feel like they can open up to you. And that's how we make changes. And I really respect that in people who are in activist circles, that they are so openly and obviously themselves that it gives everybody around them the feeling that they're allowed to be themselves too. And I think that's something that's amazing about both of these people that we talked about. Yeah, me too. Oh, well, that went a long time. (laughs) (laughs) What time is it? Oh my God, it's 10. Oh my goodness. Good thing I ate dinner before this. All right, everybody. Well, we want your coming out stories. Even if you would like to share them with us anonymously, just make sure that you let us know. We will definitely hide your privacy if that is the case, but we would really, really love to share your stories to make that the best episode that it can possibly be. So please send us your messages by June 24th. You can email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can like and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. And if you love us and you think others will love us, the best way to help us is leaving us a five-star review and writing a quick sentence about why you love us on Apple Podcasts. When you do that, we'll feature you on Reviews Day Tuesday on our Instagram. All right, that's all we got for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to To rage on. Bye! Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.